I think it is natural and it is actually asked of us to continue to question God's existence and not just what we were taught biblically and how we were raised. I love living in the question and I love teaching students to not just to accept blindly the existence of a higher power or of God. This is In Good Faith, where it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Today on In Good Faith, we have two really interesting guests, and they both tie in with aspects of emotion, one with music and one that we'll start with, Reverend Benjamin Perry, about crying. So I'm here in studio with senior producer Heather Bigley. Hello. And with student producer Leah King. Hello. These discussions got me, both of them, thinking about either the part of emotion or about music in my worship life. We spoke with Reverend Benjamin Perry. He's associated with Middle Church in New York. We spoke to him from his home in Maine about his book called Cry Baby. But there's a comma in there. Cry, comma, baby. Why our tears matter. Yeah, and I think this is a really important look socially at how we keep people from crying. and Not just men, but women too. Men, women, people of color, we kind of assign a lot of negativity to tears, and I'm glad someone's talking about that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and because it's in good faith, there is a faith aspect to this. I was really moved to think and to feel by the times when he talked about when we hide ourselves from our own emotions, we also hide ourselves from ourselves and from God. Yeah, I think the whole thing is very just well-spoken and eloquent, the way he talks about God and He has a blessing at the end where he talks about how crying has affected him personally, and he kind of gives a challenge to the listeners, to everyone in his congregation and listening on the podcast, what they can do. So as we head into listening to Reverend Benjamin Perry, prepare yourselves for this question. You're going to need to be thinking, when was the last time you cried? Not just, you know, just a little welling up like my wife at store openings or (laughs) or whatever, but— Like, cry, cry. Can you even remember? Maybe some of you say, oh, this morning, and others of you, like me, will have to think back through months, maybe years. My interest in crying comes from a really profound personal experience where I realized that I hadn't cried in more than a decade and that something inside of me had been fundamentally broken because we all begin life crying frequently. It's our first means of communication with our mothers, with other caregivers. It's the way that we relate to the world. And for myself as a child, I continued to cry frequently and openly. I was a very emotive kid. And throughout my childhood, I was really blessed to have parents who didn't shame me or tell me not to cry. And yet, I still lived in a world where, particularly for boys, crying is seen as something shameful It's often linked to uh, homosexuality, which I (laughs) have had my own, uh, you know, internal struggles coming to terms with the fact that I was bisexual. And all of this meant that by the time I got to middle school, I had really suppressed my tears entirely. I didn't cry anymore. And so then when I was in seminary and I had a professor ask us to think about the last time we wept, I heard all of these people around the table sharing these beautiful memories and experiences of weeping with friends and family, of grief, of just rich humanity. And the conversation got around the table to me, and I realized that I had nothing. Ten years is a long time. Yeah, it wasn't until I really confronted that that I recognized that there was something that I had deadened inside myself that I was not truly living. And so, yeah, I I went back to my dorm room that evening and I said, well, this is it. I am going to make myself cry. (laughs) I love your methodology and list of attempts. 
I had a whole methodology because at first I sat down and I thought it was going to be simple and nothing happened. And so then I said, okay, well, what makes people cry? And I looked at videos and I tried to, you know, listen to sad music and set a mood. And still I I was so emotionally numb that I couldn't even come close. And so it really took extreme emotional manipulation of myself thinking about what I would say to my parents when they were dying. That's what it took in order to bring myself to a point where I was feeling enough of something that all of a sudden I felt the tears start to come again. And it sounds like once you put a little crack in that dam, the whole thing just opened up. I basically decided that I was going to cry every day. Um, And so for the next few months, I, at the end of every day, would make sure that I sat down and brought myself to tears And it really was not very long until all of a sudden I just started crying more easily in my normal life. A lot of times I didn't have to wait until the end of the day because something beautiful had happened and I had started weeping or a friend told me something tender and tears came to my eyes. And I think the the rapid shift between a decade of not weeping and all of a sudden becoming somebody who cries with regularity speaks to the fact that There is something natural and deeply human about crying. It is the state of not crying, which is unnatural. I love that you said, I'm, I'm quoting you here, I would approach weeping as a spiritual discipline. And as I let myself embrace the tears that now steadily fell, I felt more like myself than I had in years. Yeah. So it's, it, it's almost like a kind of a finding of yourself. In Latter-day Saint scripture, there is a beautiful, cherished, section that talks about becoming one of the people of God. It said, willing to bear one another's burdens that they may be light, willing to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those that stand in need of comfort. To me, that seems like, can you do God's work, whatever you envision that to be, without that empathy? And do you have to have been cracked open to really be with people in those circumstances? I don't think that we can be full people without that Mm. emotional integrity. I think that what God wants from us most deeply, to paraphrase Howard Thurman, is for people to come alive. Elsewhere in the book, I use the frame of resurrection for the experience of crying when I hadn't for so long, because that's what it felt like. It felt like finding myself again, but more than anything, it felt like being alive again. Mm. I hadn't realized how used, how habituated I had become to simply skimming over the surface of my emotions and never truly experiencing anything because I was so scared of experiencing something deeply enough that it would make me cry. Well, you mentioned people sharing something tender or beautiful. At the outset, I would think, boy, this sounds emotionally exhausting. (laughs) to make yourself cry and think of sad things. But but it sounds like you came to a place where even joy, uh, the tears were often tears of joy. Well, and that's the thing. We don't just cry when we're sad. We cry when we're proud of somebody, uh, when somebody shares something that is difficult for them and we've been in relationship with them for a long time and we are overjoyed at this change in their circumstances. Crying comes out of an outpouring of feeling, of emotion, in any sense. And so, yeah, I think that so oftentimes we suppress tears because we are worried about shedding them uh, in particular circumstances. So we say, oh, I, you know, I will be seen as weak if I get hurt and I cry, and therefore I'm going to suppress the tears in that context. But what ends up happening is the only sure way to suppress tears is to actually limit the amount that we are feeling something in general. Mm -hmm. And so if we continue to do that again and again, we just stop feeling things as deeply. When it comes back to being a person of faith, to love our neighbor as ourself, if we don't know ourselves, we will not be effective in loving our neighbor. Mm. And part of Loving our neighbor is being in real relationship with them. And that means having the courage to bring all of ourself into a room. Those tender parts, the vulnerable parts, our fears, our hopes, our yearnings. If we suppress those out of fear that someone is going to judge us for looking weak, we don't make ourselves strong. We cut ourselves off from the world and from the neighbors that God calls us to love. So interesting because you're talking about really the, the second great commandment there to love our neighbors as ourself. Can we love God without those feelings or can we experience God's love even for us, ourself? 
I guess I'm just asking, in relearning to cry, did that change your relationship with God? When I started feeling again, it added a dimension to my prayer life, to the, the hymns of praise that I would sing, that made me feel that relationship with God in a different kind of way. I had a intellectual understanding of who God might be. I was a Presbyterian growing up. It's a very heady faith. Uh, and so I had a very good intellectualized ideas about God. I did not have a personal relationship with God. And it was that experience of reacquainting myself with my own emotions that opened me up enough to have a real relationship with God, which is also, I think, what enabled me to later have better relationships with other people. I'm not seeing a downside to this. One of the things that I, I really try to avoid when I'm talking about crying is I think so many people grow up with all of this shame wrapped around tears. So many people stop crying altogether because they have all the shame around crying. And then they grow up and they turn into adults who all of a sudden have all of this shame around the inability to cry. And so I never want to tell people, oh, if you don't cry, that's, that's a personal failing. If you realize that you don't cry or that you almost never cry or you have not cried in a long time, it's an invitation to re-enter relationship with those parts of yourself that you have become estranged from. That failure is not yours. That shame is not yours. It's a product of a culture that has deadened you. There are all sorts of people who profit, sometimes quite literally, by making sure that people don't fully experience what they're feeling. We all live in this culture that affects us in a, in a thousand different ways, even below our, our level of perception or, or understanding. And so our emotional lives, as much as we have the ability to control them or to be intentional about them, are also the product of all of that stuff that we have inherited. And I never want people to feel any kind of shame because they wake up one day and they realize that they are unable to cry. But I do think that if we approach that with curiosity, it invites us into a different kind of relationship with ourselves, into a different kind of relationship with the people we love, with a different kind of relationship with God. I want to pursue each of those just a little bit as far as a relationship with ourself and knowing who we are. Of course, as I read this, I had to ask myself, put down the book, when did I cry last? Like not have just a little welling up because the music was so beautiful, but like cry, cry. And I thought of an instance within the last year, which sounds oh, better than 10, but still <laughs> a while. And then I thought, uh-oh, what about before that? And then I thought, I tend not to ever have that kind of crying myself. The times I can think of once was something really difficult had happened. And I was talking to my wife about it, and I felt okay just kind of letting go. And I wonder if... Having someone there willing to hear that is what made it possible. I do think it's often easier to cry grounded in relationship, particularly with people who we know well. Mm -hmm. you know, my, my wife, I cry with her frequently. Uh, and it's because I feel safe and loved and held enough to be fully open, fully vulnerable. Part of my spiritual discipline of, of crying more intentionally has been trying to widen that circle and just be vulnerable and tender with people who I might not ordinarily think to be vulnerable and tender with. And I think the more that we're able to do that, the more we're able to cultivate deeper relationship beyond the folks it might be easiest to have that kind of relationship with. I do think, though, that there's another interesting piece, particularly as it relates to men and crying, where when I was doing interviews for the book... Many men reported that it was easier for them to cry if they were talking to their wives, their daughters, queer folks, their husbands. But I, I think part of that is because it puts us into in a position of control. I'm crying on behalf of somebody else. I'm I'm not actually interesting lose, losing it myself. <laughs> this is an expression of my care, my concern, my compassion for this other person. And that, that that's not bad. It's wonderful. It's laudable. But I do think that there is a, a way that it still retains some level of protection between the vulnerability that just crying sheerly for ourselves because we are wounded because we are scared because we are hopeful there is a naked vulnerability in that kind of weeping that i think 
is even yet a bit more difficult than crying on behalf of somebody else. Boy, you're making me think of Mary and Martha, Lazarus, Jesus. Jesus knows that Lazarus is about to be resurrected because he's there to do that. But he weeps with Mary and Martha. He weeps with their sorrow. In spite of knowing a bigger picture, he's willing to do that with them. It's one of my favorite Bible stories. Even though Jesus gets there and can make things different, can make things right in a moment, he doesn't fix things right away. Mm. So often when we are with friends and loved ones who are suffering, our initial impulse can be to make it better. And that, again, is not a bad thing. It comes out of our own love for them, our, uh, you know, not wanting to see them upset. But so often what people need is not someone to make it better. They need someone to sit there in that suffering place with them. What I see in Jesus showing up and simply weeping is his communication with Mary and Martha. You are not alone. Somebody else is suffering with you. And I think it's something that we can all learn from in our own lives of faith and our own relationships with other people, that oftentimes what God is calling us to do is not to, to make things better, or at least not right away, but just to, to be there in that suffering place so that people know that they're not suffering by themselves. You have drawn a lot of ideas from various religious traditions in this, which uh, has made us think of uh, the Lutheran bishop, Christopher Stendhal's idea of holy <laughs> envy. Do you feel that? Do you have an example of that in your life? Did that shape the making of this book in some way? I partly go into the different religious traditions because I want to emphasize how universal crying is. I am a Christian minister, but crying is certainly not something that Christians have a, a monopoly on in our sacred texts. That right. There are beautiful, rich examples of tears and weeping in Muslim texts and Jewish texts and Hindu texts and Buddhist texts. I personally had the really incredible fortune to do a six-month intensive Zen study with a monk at my seminary and have since cultivated an ongoing meditation practice. That is something that I find really life-giving as a part of my spiritual life in addition to my Christian faith. And one of the things that I love about Zen meditation is that it's organized around observing your emotions. My teacher used to talk about when you're sitting and you're meditating, that the goal is not to not think anything. The trick is to not follow the thoughts. She used to talk about imagining yourself at a train station when an emotion would come in. The goal is not to not be at the train station. The goal is to not get on the train. And so you would look at the emotion that you're feeling, observe it, name it, and let it go. And that kind of practice in an ongoing way has helped me to be more attentive to what I'm actually experiencing. Because so many times I'll be really angry, for example, and I'll start to meditate and I'll realize that I'm not actually angry. Maybe I'm scared. Maybe there's something that happened on the news that I am feeling rage about. When I sort of dig under that or sit with it for a little while, I notice what I'm actually feeling is, is vulnerability. I I don't love being in a country where violence is so quotidian and relentless. You have an interesting section, uh, the chapter, All These Wailing Women. And I often see that being a little bit emotional can be acceptable for a man in some ways if, if they're in a pastoral position. It shows mm -hmm. caring. But you have this great example of uh, some folks in Ghana, professional mourners. And you quote one of them that she says, some people just don't know how to cry. Which implies that some people do. In fact, maybe that's even a gift that they've been given. And then if I can just push one paragraph more, you say, as more women lead professional teams and shatter patriarchal paradigms, their leadership can create an environment in which people of every gender feel more comfortable crying or with tears. And that... Uh, the lead pastor you mentioned, Reverend Jackie Lewis at Middle Church, creates that environment. Have you seen that, uh, not just with her, but in general, when you have women in positions of spiritual leadership, does that open up that or give permission? I think oftentimes when women enter leadership roles and organizations, they bring an emotional intelligence and an emotional integrity that changes systems. 
Jackie is an incredible example of this, the way that sometimes a terrible thing has happened in the world and we have our staff meeting and we have lots of things to do. But before we do any of them, we'll simply sit and name what we're feeling and cry together. And that even 10 minutes of honoring what we are all experiencing totally changes the dynamic of the rest of the day of work. All of a sudden I'm able, because I've had that time to just be a person, to just be Ben, then I can go out and I can be Reverend Benjamin Perry and do the public theology and the mm-hmm. design and anything else that I need to do in the world. This is In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. Women play hugely important roles in our workplaces. They are subject to the same kinds of forces, the same capitalism, the same demands for a certain kind of emotional performance that have become normative in those spaces. And so elsewhere in that I share, you know, the example of a, a media company that my wife used to work at and I interviewed some folks who worked there for for the book and they reported how so many of them cried regularly at work, but none of them did it openly. There was a staircase that was known as the place to cry. And so people would go to that one staircase. And in fact, sometimes you would go to the staircase and someone would already be crying there. And so you would have to go find a different place because the crying spot was already taken. And you had all of these people who were experiencing a very abusive workplace and it was affecting them emotionally and they were crying about it, but they weren't doing it openly even in an office that was almost entirely women, they still were being expected to perform the kind of Mm. cultural performance of being emotionally okay that we have long demanded men perform. And so actually, I think more and more that's what's been happening, even as I do see incredible prophetic people like uh, Reverend Dr. Lewis leading in a different kind of way. I don't know that that is what is normatively happening across the board. In fact, I think in many places, the opposite is happening where folks who maybe even outside of their work lives have a richer emotional life are expected to curtail that in order to be taken seriously in a workplace. And I think that that's really, really toxic. I I don't think it leads to the best work. I certainly don't think it leads to the, the best workplace experience. And I don't think it allows us to to really be human at our places of employment, which is something that we should all enjoy. So if there are cultural expectations not to cry and to tamp that down, who benefits from that? Crying is inherently disruptive. It's one of the, the constants from the time that we are wee little babes all the way through when we were adults. If somebody starts wailing, People notice. It changes the nature of a room. Yeah. Is that because it forces us to feel something? Yeah, it's also loud. It's disruptive. <laughs> you, you, you can't pretend that somebody isn't... If someone is really wailing, mm-hmm. you, you can't just pretend it's not happening. I mean, you could, but it's going to feel really weird for everybody because there is something in us emotionally that is pricked when we hear somebody in that degree of expressive anguish. And I think that we have a culture where so many people are suffering quietly, that if people truly knew the pain that so many people around them are experiencing, it would ignite the kind of solidarity that leads to dramatic social change. And so, yeah, if if you're somebody who benefits from the social order as it stands, it is not in your best interest for people to be openly weeping because that will highlight the amount of unjust suffering that people are experiencing. And I think we see that in really dramatic ways, you know, how, for example, we violently police protests after police shootings and suppress the anguish of communities of color who are protesting injustice. They are also just expressing anguish. People are saying this is intolerably painful to live like this day after day. Oh, you quote a nine-year-old girl in a public forum, people trying to hush her, and she's saying, no, we should not have to feel this way. We should not have to see this happen to our parents. 
And so all the way from, you know, really large scale lobbing tear grass into a crowd to organizing a workplace where you aren't supposed to cry because it allows people to be overworked and underpaid and undervalued from the, the very macro to the intimately interpersonal. There are people who benefit from people not crying, mm. but it is a very, very small subset of people. And I think that if we collectively reclaim our ability to weep openly and to see and honor one another's tears, it will ignite the kind of social change that we are long overdue to enjoy. Well, there is a whole book of the Old Testament called Lamentations. There's a place for it in theology. Could you end with reading uh, how you end the book? This is, I think, page 205. Uh, I'm going to call it a poem, but it's called A Blessing for Crying. I would be glad to, Steve. Because I'm a pastor, I'll leave you with a benediction. If you've lost your tears, may you find them again. Know that you are never beyond redemption and worthy of full emotional life. May crying nourish you, a balm for the wounds you still carry, and a salve on fresh hurt. As droplets fall, may they water new growth, and may our collective weeping shape a world better than the one we inherited. May we attune ourselves to grief and hold the places we are broken repairers of the breach. May cries long silenced be heard in full, yeast for our communal rising. Hold each other fiercely, not to build a future where every eye is dry, but one where we weep copiously from the joy and tenderness of living. I really like that blessing. Leah, you mentioned this at the outset, that that you like this blessing he gives for us to cry. Yeah. And you were telling us that you come from a family of crybabies. Can I phrase it, <laughs> phrase it that way? Sure, yeah. So I was lucky to grow up in a family where crying was kind of encouraged. Like we would watch a movie together and we'd all be crying. There is one outlier, my brother, who would be looking at us like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> but we'd watch a movie as a family and we would cry. And I think growing up in that environment... I have just learned that crying is a good way for me to express my emotion and then kind of move on from something. Like, it's a good way to release things. And so when he said he hadn't cried in 10 years, I was like, oh, my goodness, I could not imagine because it was just such a big part of my growing up. Yeah. Did your brother ever wonder, am I really one of the, am I a real child? (laughs) Was I adopted or something? I like that. And I don't think I was ever told not to cry. Mm-hmm. But I absorbed that really quick on the playground, yeah, especially for boys and just from the world around me. I remember being in college. One of my roommates was in some kind of health class, and she announced to us that we were all supposed to cry once a day. That was healthy, to cry once a day. And I remember thinking, what? in the world because by that time I had developed my carapace, my hardened shell, um, where the way you dealt with emotion was sarcasm, either making fun of yourself or, or making fun of the people around you. That all changed when I hit my 40s and other women will know that you go through certain changes in your 40s where just I was crying literally two or three times a day. It's just all of these emotions were coming through, and it was horrifying for me, as you can imagine. I was so embarrassed over it. And then after you do that for two or three years, you're just like, well, this is me. I'm just up here sobbing. Um, It was difficult. And so you could think, oh, don't be so emotional about something. Don't get stuck in that. But Leah, you said, for you, that was sort of cathartic, and then you could move on. Yeah. And I've never really thought about crying that way, that I just need to have a good cry and then I can move on. I also liked his faith aspects. There are favorite scriptures of mine. I mentioned one about mourning for those who mourn. In my tradition, there's another one where God looks at his creation and weeps. And the, the, the prophet he's talking to says, how can you weep? You're God. You made everything. He says, I weep for the creations of my hands and how they hate one another. Just saying that almost makes me cry to <laughs> yeah. picture a God who can weep and who feels those things so so deeply for us. Yes. Well, what I loved about what Ben Perry had to say to us was he shared with us this idea that can we be fully ourselves in a relationship? If we can't, 
is that relationship even real, right? And can we fully know God if we're not fully ourselves, if we're not allowing ourselves to have all these emotions? It reminds me very much of how I understand joy, right? Joy is not just this unmeditated happiness where we're just running around going, everything is great. Joy is an acknowledgement of our sorrow, right? It's only through our sorrow that we recognize joy. And it's something I learned from the scripture in Revelation, right? That God will wipe away our tears. Mm. Not necessarily that we'll never have tears again, but that, yeah, this is part of being human is to recognize recognize the pain that we have in our lives. And sometimes if you can't solve something for someone, you can at least cry with them. You can be there with them in that intense emotion without being scared of that. Yeah. The book is called Cry Baby, Why Our Tears Matter. Reverend Benjamin Perry is the author. I recommend it. It was really, really interesting to me. And I hope you've all thought about the last time you cried. <laughs> and if you haven't for, if you can't remember, do something about that. You can do something about that. So moving from that kind of emotion to the thing that I would say more than anything has made me cry in my life is music. It's a lovely, lovely interview. And I like, Aaliyah pointed this out earlier. We have this congruence of of tears and music in this episode of poetry and music. And I'm really excited about that. So Cantor Sharon Brown-Levy is the cantor at Congregation Colomy in Salt Lake City. She spoke to us from her office there at the synagogue. And one of the big questions is, what does a cantor do? All I knew was that Neil Diamond's dad in the movie was a cantor and that he sang. But what does that mean and who sings and why is it the cantor and not the rabbi and all of this? So we started off with hearing something very beautiful and very traditional called the Shema, which is a prayer that is said both in the morning and the evening. The scripture that it refers to actually talks to teaching them to your children when you lie down and when you rise up. So it's actually uh, twice a day, and in English we'd say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. It's a daily, multiple-time daily turning of our thoughts to God and that He is our God. And this Shema is actually for the high holidays. And there's a different Shema for the morning and for the evening. And we're going to start our interview with the Shema for the morning for the high holidays. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu The word cantor actually in the English language comes from Latin root to chant, the person who chants or sings. But in Hebrew, the word for cantor is chazan. That's a mouthful. And so chazan actually means visionary or one who creates vision. And very much like a rabbi, the cantor is kind of the partner in visioning the congregation, where the rabbi is the primary visionary of a synagogue. As our rabbi is here, I'm I'm basically rabbi's partner in this. So it's a really wonderful experience when one gets to do this kind of forethinking, um, not only for the short term, but also for the long term. And so it's not simply about leading religious services, which rabbis and cantors do, but the musical element of the service primarily is served by the cantor. Rabbis can be musical too. Some are, some are not. There is no stipulation one way or another. Some of them happen to be musical as well. 
But the idea is that as a team, they are bringing the congregation to a new direction, not just in a spiritual and a worship leading sense, but on a higher level through the areas of social justice and making the world a better place. It is not just about engaging every member of the community, but it is also about reaching the outside community. For example, our rabbi here does a lot of work in the outside community in addition to his work inside. As I'm sure you probably know, it's kind of a unique position here in the state of Utah. Uh, Until I came here two years ago, I'd never heard of a rabbi working so closely with the governor and with the uh, political figures of the state. Rabbis do this, but not to the extent that our beloved Rabbi Specter has the opportunity to do. The position of Cantor here is a little bit more unique than positions of Cantors around the country in that I am the only Cantor, not just a Cantor, but the only Cantor in the entire state of Utah. That's pretty unique. And not to mention that, to be in a full-time capacity where you're not only leading services, but you are teaching in multiple demographics to the congregation. You're doing outreach on the outside, working with the interfaith community, as I am doing here now. And we are also uh, partners in the areas of social justice. So there are many facets of our job descriptions that do cross over, but where the cantor puts the greatest specialty is in the areas of music as well as education. Rabbis educate too, but the music is the great impetus in pushing forward our prayer and worship as well as our education. Cantor Brown-Levy, I'm wondering what sort of home you grew up in and if this tradition was part of that house you grew up in, both the singing as well as as the faith. Sure. Well, born and raised in the city of Philadelphia, and I definitely did not come accidentally to music. I am the child of two extraordinarily musical parents, sadly, both of whom are deceased, but each one of them is my daily inspiration for life. So my father was a world-class pianist, a conductor, a composer, not just in the secular world, but also in the Jewish community. And he was exposed to various styles of music from the sacred to the secular. So not only did he work in the Jewish community, but he also worked in the Christian community. So I had people walking into my home who were opera singers, who were Broadway level performers, who were Jewish musicians. He conducted the Jewish choir of Philadelphia. He was fluent in Hebrew as well as English and Spanish. And my mother, may she rest in peace, also an extraordinary singer. She also could play other instruments, but her specialty was singing. And many people knew my parents, Marilyn and Art Brown, as the Jewish captain and Tennille of the city of Philadelphia. (laughs) They were really beloved there and well-known in both the religious and secular communities. But my sister came along, all four of us Browns would get together and we would perform professionally. We had a great time performing, particularly in areas where we would give back. So the idea of making sure the community saw music, not only as performance, but as therapy, we would often perform in nursing homes to help give the seniors a better experience in their life when they didn't have family visiting them. We would come, we would spend time with them, we would perform for them. And my parents were really, truly extraordinary this way. They had me and my sister involved in music and dance and theater from a very young age. So this is how the exposure to a variety of styles happened. But what is really interesting is that growing up in this branch of the faith called conservative Judaism, women and girls did not have the same ability to lead a community and to serve in the Jewish professional world as they do today. There were rabbis and cantors graduating seminaries in the 1970s, but that was not the world I knew. So the cantors I saw coming into my house, I had the pleasure of listening to and watching my father accompany, were all men. So when I got to college and trying to figure out my direction in life, somebody came to me in my sophomore year and I was doing gigs like many other music majors do. You know, you've got to get gigs here and there, taking musical performances. I sang, believe it or not, like in some churches, which is what singers did to try to make some extra income in those days, even though it wasn't my faith. But I learned a tremendous amount about other faiths singing in churches and got to know those communities really well. But I never lost sight of my own heritage. 
And a non-Jewish friend of mine said to me in college, said, Sharon, there's this congregation looking for someone to sing and play guitar. I know you sing and play guitar. Go and see what that's all about. Well, they already had their professional choir there. There was no cantor. But they said, we do need somebody to come and work with the religious school students and teach them some Hebrew, teach them some Jewish music, give them a pride and a sense of their heritage. Why don't you go do that? At the time, I was about 20 years old. And I said, okay, why not? So accompanying the kids throughout the year, teaching them, giving a sense of Jewish life cycle events and holidays and et cetera. I was at a professional Jewish educators convention and a cantor comes in to my seminar that I was teaching with the kids. So we started to have a conversation. He said, you should seriously think about becoming a cantor. That was 1990 or 91. He and I are still the closest of friends. And he is one of the people who helped me on my journey of studies to becoming a cantor. You mentioned growing up in the heritage. So I'm wondering, aside from music, just for a moment, what faith life in your home was like? God was very, very prominent in our home. So my Abba especially, and my mother, of course, supported this. My Abba was a Hebrew teacher through the Gratz system. And so while I didn't grow up in a clergy home per se, my father was only 13 years of age when he was asked to professionally accompany a cantor in Philadelphia, which is pretty unique. So I had that cantor. I called him my Uncle Sam, just cantor Sam Appel of Blessed Memory, was a very prominent cantor. And he sang on the Joey Bishop show. He had like lots of other endeavors that he did, but he he was fully in, in, entrenched in his cantorial world. And so... Cantor Sam Appel imparted a lot of joy of worship and God into my father and as well as my father's very, very strong Hebrew school upbringing. Um, he, he imparted all of that passion to us. So God and Jewish worship and Jewish studies, it's so much more incidentally than just the belief in God, but it is an entire cultural, it's a cultural experience right. because worshiping our faith is what we call an experiential type of thing in that each holiday that that one follows in the Jewish tradition, there are foods associated with the holiday. There are services associated with the holiday. There are activities and places to give back in the community. So it's experiential on many levels that we're not just remembering what happened, but where we're actually reenacting each piece of the religious holiday experience. And God is an integral part of each of those experiences. So I would definitely say we had a faith-based home and we experienced it to the full degree with my father's uh, amazing passion for this and my mother's support of that passion. It was a pretty amazing thing to have that much music, professional music in the home accompanied with the faith. It was different than the typical Jewish home, I would say, of kids growing up um, in the 70s and 80s as I did. This is In Good Faith. We'll be right back. Welcome back to In Good Faith. When I have spoken with different Jewish friends, there are some who are very vocal about their personal relationship with God. And then there are others who feel like that's a private thing between me and God. Has that always been a real thing to you, or is it something that is more of a concept? I feel that God is reflected in what I've experienced in my life and is not just this entity. So I would say there were times when I was very angry and I didn't want to believe there was because mm. I went through some serious life challenges. And in those challenges, I questioned the existence of God, as I think People do tend to do in my faith tradition, but I think it is natural and it is actually asked of us to continue to question God's existence and not just what we were taught biblically and how we were raised. I love living in the question and I love teaching students to not just to accept blindly the existence of a higher power or a, a, of God. I have to confess to a little bit of holy envy on at least two parts of the Jewish experience, one of which is that it's okay to be mad at God and to have questions, and even a debate. I've been blessed to take groups to Israel, and on Friday evening, Shabbat, people are gathering, and the dancing begins, and the chanting, and just the joy. And this was a new concept to me of the joy of we are all here simply to celebrate the coming of the Sabbath. I've personally thought, I need to learn from that, not just, okay, it's Sunday, which is Sabbath for my tradition. 
but we actually be this thing I look forward to, I've prepared for, and I welcome with joy. I really love that tradition. Do you feel that? 100%. Growing up in my home, there was a tremendous amount of joy associated with the Shabbat and I've had the opportunity also to serve in Jewish summer camps, and they have these amazing musical jam sessions and people singing at the top, so their voices, and it goes all the way through to Saturday night, from Friday night to Saturday night. It's pretty amazing. I strive each and every Shabbat to create a sense of that joy with every service. It is not something that comes out of the necessity of the work, but it truly flows through me. And it's something that I am just meant to do. If I could ask a little bit about what you sing, there's chanting passages of Torah, and there's a whole separate liturgy of music that's used for various holidays. How are those different? There is a tremendous amount of liturgy. There is weekday liturgy that happens three times a day. There's festival liturgy, which is also throughout the day, but different congregations observe different numbers of services for the holidays and the festivals. So we have to be very skilled as cantors to render the different styles of musical motifs. That expression in Hebrew is called nusach. There are thousands and thousands of kinds of nusach that you need to commit to your memory and that you need to be able to apply to the Hebrew language so that you're actually communicating the meaning of that liturgy through your music. Because music is such a connection, especially in worship. What do you see happening in members of the congregation when you're connecting through music? One of the things that I strive to do is build community. And so I strive to vary the styles of music in the service that not only honor thousands of years of Nusach tradition, but also teach people this Nusach. So there are two kinds of prayer experiences for the most part. One is just the listening piece and one is the sing-along, the participatory piece. Mm. And I really try to have a balance of both. My style as a liturgical leader is to incorporate as much participatory style singing as I can. One of the biggest barriers to that is the language, because not everybody who comes into a synagogue knows Hebrew. So to facilitate that, I say you can sing on what we call like a nonsense syllable, like yai lai lai or yadada or something like that. And those prayers will reach heaven just as well as those who know Hebrew. We welcome everyone into our space, whether they know the language or not. And a lot of the Hebrew is phonetically transliterated in our prayer books so that you could come in as a perfect stranger and know where we are. Is this tradition of cantors something that's staying the same? Is it fading? Is there a resurgence? How is that going currently? We have this amazing visual technology today so that people can tune in on Zoom or live stream. But the dichotomy of this is that you find people not coming in as often as they used to. I think they find it's just so much easier to tune in from the comfort of their own home. Those who just physically can't get there because they're ill or they're too far away, they're getting some amazing experiences. So they're pluses and minuses. This Salt Lake City community is actually growing. It's tremendous. In no small part due to Rabbi Specter, my wonderful colleague. Are there particular things that make you feel connected with God beyond the music? Music is my primary connection. I can tell you that's absolutely true. But natural beauty, being in nature, definitely connects me. Being around loved ones and making music together, that is one of the ultimate experiences. I, I knew you couldn't resist bringing music back into it. Oh, music comes right back. I can't help it because I can't disconnect it. That was Cantor Sharon Brown Levy speaking to us from Congregation Colomy, her office in the synagogue in Salt Lake City. One of my favorite things was that whole idea that she talks about and very enthusiastically living the question about yes. God. That daily you can keep asking yourself, is there a God? Do I hold God responsible for this or do I submit or is it all a fairy tale? And that you can live in that question without feeling like you failed somehow. Right. This is such, I think, an important thing for all of us walking on this journey of faith and ties in some ways back to Benjamin Perry, a 
can you fully know God and can God fully know you if you don't bring to him uh, your anger and your disbelief? In Mark, help thou mine unbelief. Uh, This is something that we all struggle with and the struggle is important and the struggle is is one of our truest expressions of ourselves, I think. So I love that she talks about this. Yeah, I think along with that, she talks about how even if you're singing on a nonsensical vowel because you don't know Hebrew and you go to the synagogue, God will still hear and understand those prayers. And I think that's beautiful because it shows kind of the power of emotion. We've seen in both of these interviews the power that emotion has in worshiping. So one Sunday, when I was growing up, our congregation had a Sunday of no music. Oh. And it was in preparation for the following Sunday, which was all music. Okay. The bishop stood up and said, we're not going to sing. But next week we have a program all about the value of music to our spirits. And it's going to be all music. That was just such a relief to me because we each have our different way. But for me... That is almost an instant connection with God that bypasses what I call the gears and cogs and wheels of my intellect and goes right to my heart. So let's go out because the Shema is recited morning and night. We have, these were both for the high holidays, but this is one, a version usually done in the evening. And with many thanks to Cantor Sharon Levy-Brown for sharing these with us. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Steve. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Shema This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team also includes Emma Ingebretson, Leah King, Tanya Lockett, and Katarina Martinich. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. And if you enjoy the show, be sure and leave a comment or review where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. You can find us on Twitter at InGoodFaithPod and on Instagram and Facebook at InGoodFaithPodcast. InGoodFaith is a production of BYU Radio.